listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. So my very first stint with public speaking happened in the fifth grade. I won the essay portion of the D.A.R.E. program, and as part of D.A.R.E. graduation, I was supposed to read my essay to the audience, and I got like three or four sentences in, and I just busted out in tears and could not control myself, and so my D.A.R.E. officer actually had to read the rest of my essay for me. And um, I am no more calm today than I was way back then. So if I take a few deep breaths, it's because I'm trying not to pass out up here. Um, I'm a much better writer than I am speaker. So I'm just literally going to read to you what God put on my heart. If I start to shake, you know why. Okay, to be honest, I did not want to do this. (laughs) When Pastor Luke called, I didn't have my phone on me, which is usual because I lose it multiple times a day. And it's probably a good thing because I would have just flat out told him, no, (laughs) not doing it. And as I thought about speaking about this service, I had many reasons why this was an awful idea. Um, I am zero for two in speaking at church and not crying. I am not the public speaker of the family. That is actually the youngest member of our family. And Pastor Luke needs to ask ask Luke instead. That's what I told God. And then I just heard God gently urging is, is that right, Moses? And I, oh, you know, when conviction hits in, and so like a sulky spiritual teenager, like all I could muster was fine. So I also considered that maybe this was something I was supposed to do because I had had this reoccurring thought in my head that had resurfaced because of the recent events in Ukraine over the past couple weeks. And it's what do we as Christians, as a church, say about pain and suffering? How do we respond? How do we wrap our minds, our hearts, our spirits around this Goliath of a topic? Um, This is not a new question for me. Growing up was messy. Um, My family was broken in more ways than one. It's something that I don't talk about often because, well, it hurt. It, It left scars. And to sh... We're going to get through this. I promise we're going to get through this. (laughs) 
to share my story in completion would require me to share the stories of others. And they're not stories I have permission to tell. So out of respect for others, namely my parents, something I just don't talk about, not openly anyway. But I grew up in a Southern, in the Southern Baptist belt of Georgia and Tennessee. We were often in church. And mind you, what the congregation saw on Sunday was not the family that happened midweek. But we looked the part, so no one really knew to ask. My grandparents on both sides were staunch, and I mean staunch, Southern Baptist. This wasn't just the family way. This was the holy way, okay? And it encapsulated my entire theological background before meeting Luke. In most Southern Baptist churches, the answer to pain and sovereignty is God's, or to pain and suffering is God's sovereignty. God knows, so it must be a part of his plan. Now, this makes sense given the rest of Baptist theology. Sure, you need Jesus for salvation, but you choose to follow Jesus. You choose to be baptized. You choose to live differently. You choose what Jesus would do if he were walking in your shoes. Righteousness and sanctification lie in your obedience to the law, or at least your ability to appear as such a disciple. And suffering just becomes part of that reasoning. Suffering is part of God's plan. It's his purpose. It's going to strengthen your faith. It's going to refine you in holy fire. It's going to purge sin from your life. It almost becomes like a trophy, a badge of honor. You're suffering like Jesus suffered. So for me growing up, hearing God's plan and his answer was the answer to pain, I thought, okay, well, either something's really wrong with this theology, God's a jerk. How can suffering be a part of God's plan for my life? How can hurting at home be for my good? I'm not exactly sure what a refining fire is, but I don't think it has anything to do with childhood trauma. I was 10 years old when I met Jesus. I can recall the moment. I knew there was a hell. I had heard plenty of sermons about that. I knew there was a heaven, and that's where Jesus was. I knew I was a sinner, so I wasn't going there. But I also knew that I was really tired of hurting and desperate for peace. So God wasn't a jerk because he was the only constant good in my life. There had to be a problem with the theology. It's not that God's sovereignty, his omniscience, isn't part of the answer. It's that when it becomes the only answer, it falls short leaving many people hurting and confused in the wake of legalism and defeat. Cognition should not be equated with causation. A sovereign God who knows of suffering should not be confused with a designer and planner of it. Fast forward a decade, and I shocked my entire family and social circle by meeting and marrying a guy who lived in North Dakota in 10 short months. He was a Lutheran at that. Needless to say, like my family had plenty of opinions about the ordeal. 
A counselor once asked me how getting, since getting married so hastily was the precedent set before me, it was pretty amazing it actually worked out. Well, no, I knew exactly all the wrong paths I could have taken. The fact that I was marrying Luke wasn't amazing. It was God's hand. She asked me how it would be different. How did I know I wasn't perpetuating generational cycles? Well, that was an easy answer. I knew a lot of people living for Jesus, but Luke was the first one I'd ever met resting in who Jesus already was. There was a level of peace and grace I wanted, and I knew it would lead our marriage through the ups and downs. So where does the theology of God's sovereignty lead us down this slippery slope of misunderstanding about suffering? Well, when sin entered the world, the world broke. Our relationship with God broke. Our relationship with each other broke. Our relationship with the earth broke. As a horticulturalist, I can tell you, weeds are part of the sin problem. Perfect natural systems that God put into place at creation had monkey wrenches thrown in them. Disease, illness, pain, suffering. John 10.10 is clear. Anything that steals, kills, or destroys came from Satan, and it's a result of sin. Not necessarily one perfect, one person's specific sin. Jesus addressed that in John 9, when the disciples tried to correlate one man's suffering with either his or his parents' sin. By saying sin in the world, we're talking in a more general sense. Is God aware of the pain and the suffering caused by sin? Yeah. Does that make him the designer, the perpetuator of it? Does it mean that he purposes it? No. Even in the book of Job, God's not the designer of Job's suffering. Satan made those plans. God kept and redeemed Job's life. So why do some receive more or less suffering than others? I don't know. I don't have an answer. A year ago, Jude was diagnosed with a MISC-C, a COVID complication. And it's often missed by frontline doctors, especially with children of color, because the symptoms don't present in the same way. That's what happened to us when we went to urgent care on Sunday morning. The doctor sent us home. By Monday morning, I was desperate. I called our beloved pediatrician before the clinic was even open, and she made a room for us at the clinic. And then she put Jude in a wheelchair and walked us across the parking lot into the ER, into a room in the ER, looked at the ER step, and said, your next step is to call Children's. Within three hours, Jude was on a life flight to Minneapolis with a scary blow pr blood pressure, scary low blood pressure, and possible heart failure. He spent the next five days in PICU. He shocked all of his doctors when he walked off that floor hand in hand with his dad five days later. Terms like miraculous were used to describe his fast recovery. We watched God heal his body and give us back our son. And I wanted to shout from the heavens, God saved our son. But we had spent five days on PICU.
I saw parents walk onto that floor just as desperate for healing for their child as I was for mine. I also saw them walk off that floor alone. I didn't know how to praise God for the healing of my son in that moment, no matter how grateful I was, because I knew I didn't deserve my son any less than any other mother on that floor. I grew up in Southern gospel music. Now, Southern gospel music is one of those music genres that you either grow up with it and you love it, or you listen to it and you think, why are they listening to that? Leonard Fletcher wrote a song. It's called Thank You for the Grace. The chorus of it goes like this. Thank you for the grace you give just to go another mile. And thank you for the strength I feel just to face this bitter trial. Though this valley seems so long that I'll never leave this place, when I can't thank you for the answer, Lord, I'll thank you for the grace. Sometimes there isn't an answer, just the grace to get through. So in 2011, we wanted our third child. It became really obvious that my body wasn't going to have this, and so we were going to need to choose to put money either into fertility treatment or into adoption. And because we'd already adopted Kaya, we thought, okay, let's do it again. So in January 2012, we were matched with a semi-local birth mom and an open adoption. We got to know her. We formed a relationship with her. We still have a relationship with her. When Livy was born, we were at the hospital, and we were there to spend time with birth mom and with baby. And when Livy was, was discharged from the hospital, we took her home. Now, in the state of Minnesota, birth mom has 10 business days to rescind her signature on the adoption paperwork. Due to weekends and Memorial Day, this time period for us was about three weeks after Libby's birth. And on that last day, birth mom rescinded her signature and wanted to parent. Nothing can prepare you for that moment. And I fell hard into depression. I was angry. I yelled at God on the regular. I figured, he's big enough. He can handle it. There used to be this frozen yogurt place in Alec called Cherry Mary. It's not in business any longer. But during June and July of 2012, I pretty much kept their doors open all by myself. I got to the point that come early July, Luke was like, I'm not trying to rush your grief. I just need to know, do we need to make a line item in the budget for this? Does emotional eating go under groceries or miscellaneous? Like, I didn't care. I was hurting. And Froyo was that moment of sugary relief. Well-meaning people would say things like, oh, it's just a part of God's plan. One person even said, well, she wasn't legally yours yet anyway. And I just kept my mouth shut with cookie dough. Well-meaning people often feel the need to say something to give purpose to our pain. But please hear this. There is no purpose in pain outside of destroying our relationship with God. It's a pain is a tool that Satan uses to turn a 
good God into the bad guy. During this time, Luke gave me a book called The Problem of Suffering by Gregory Schultz. He's a Lutheran pastor who had two children born with genetic anomalies that pretty much guaranteed that they wouldn't survive childhood. Schultz wrote this book after their deaths and defined suffering as the soul's inaudible scream of why I got that. That was real to me. That's what I had been screaming at God for weeks. This is unfair, deeply unfair. It just wasn't fair, not only as Livy's adoptive parents, but it was unfair to her because we knew the condition she was returning to. And I just wanted God to tell me why. One evening as I was praying and once again yelling at God, I just felt him speak to my heart, Katie, if you never know why, is it enough that I do? I was honest. No. Nope. But you can make it enough. You can take my heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. You can douse anger and peace. You can plant faith and trust in the furrows of pain. So if you're supposed to be enough, you're going to have to do it for me. When we confess that we're not enough, when the pain is too much, when the sorrow is drowning, it always leads us into one place, at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, we are never enough. It's as if Jesus looks down on us and says, I know, but I am. It's done. See, that's the rest of the answer to pain and suffering. It's not just that we have a God who knows of our pain in an intellectual and omniscient way. We have a God who sent his son to earth to know our pain. To take it onto himself. To leave peace and healing in its stead. See, I didn't know how God was going to answer this prayer for our baby girl. I also didn't know that he was going to answer the prayers for a baby boy. See, the year before, Zeke came to me and said, Mom, I told God I want a baby brother named Jude. Cool kid. I'm glad you're praying about that because I have no power over that. <laughs> On the first Sunday in August, we received a phone call. The largest adoption agency in Ohio had the case of a baby boy who had spent the last seven days in NICU. And he was set to be released in 48 hours. They had struggled to find a family for him. And they wanted to keep him out of the foster care system. So after a week, they had opened their search to out-of-state families. We were first on the list. I called Luke at work. I was like, you got to find a way to make a 15-minute break. I have got to tell you about this phone call. And his response was the same of mine. Is this our June? Yes, this is our June. We landed in Ohio on Monday morning. So we brought Jude home, and we began to settle back into routine, and I got this text from birth mom. It's not going well. I need you to take Livy back home. 
So over the next two weeks, we went through the same legal process again. But by the end of August, we had a newborn and a two-month-old joining our four- and five-month, our five-year-old. And we were this absolutely glorious mess. I sang Jesus Loves Me to them almost every night because I was just blown away at how much he really did love them. Jesus is not the Lord of the perfect, the prepared, or the able. He came for the broken, the hurting, the insufficient, because he's a healer, the savior, the redeemer of the outcast and the downcast. Pain won't end until time does. My kids often ask, Mom, what if something else bad or scary happens? And they, they can think of, like, way too many examples. Truth is, it will. Sin will leave scars on us all. I've often wondered why Jesus and his resurrected body still had scars. He didn't have to. He could have popped out of that grave good as new. But he told Thomas... No, I'm alive. No, it's me. Feel the scars in my hand and in my side. He says that to us, too. I see your scars. I've got them, too. One day, one day, time will end. One day, a new heaven and a new earth will come. One day, for all those who know Jesus... Pain and suffering will reach its limits. And the only scars left will be his. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.